quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, that escalated quickly. The lead starts right now. After a contentious debate, the power rankings could be shifting. Senator Kamala Harris stands out on the stage who might have the next breakout moment. And one of her many opponents, presidential candidate Cory Booker, will join me in minutes. And Joe Biden forced to defend his record after a tough debate. One campaign ally says the former VP, quote, knows he has to do better. Plus, President Trump turns a coordinated cyber attack on the U.S. into a punchline with Putin, as one former president suggests that Trump's 2016 win was illegitimate. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Brianna Keeler, in for Jake Tapper. And we begin today with the 2020 lead and Senator Kamala Harris making a moment for herself in last night's Democratic debate and going right for former Vice President Joe Biden. The Harris campaign says their fundraising has boomed post-debate, while one Democratic source close to Biden is calling Biden's debate performance not great. Now, as CNN's Kyung Law reports, the former vice president is defending his record after getting quite a bruising. The day after the debate, Joe Biden defending his record on civil rights. I respect Senator Harris. But, you know, we all know that uh, 30 seconds to 60 seconds on a campaign debate exchange can't uh, do justice to a lifetime committed to civil rights. Speaking to the Rainbow Push Coalition, a civil rights organization. I never, 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 ever opposed voluntary busing. He's reacting to the debate confrontation with Kamala Harris. She challenged Biden's past when he opposed federal mandatory busing to desegregate schools. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. What is it that turned tonight that made you discuss that? I just think that on some of these issues, it's that the American public deserves to know how we come at our priorities. There are millions of people in our country who have personal experiences with this, and that voice needs to be on the stage. A breakout moment fueling a throwback tweet and making headlines. Fundraising jumps, says the Harris campaign, to its third best day. America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. Supporters wished Harris well. Back on the trail just hours after the debate, 2020 hopefuls with an army of media staged a visit to the Homestead facility. They've refused our entry. We've asked for entry. They've refused it. The candidates didn't follow known protocol, attempting to visit the unaccompanied children at the migrant shelter to highlight Trump administration policies. We need a new president of the United States. But Harris had a debate stumble of her own. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? After the debate, Harris tried to explain her answer. So the question was, would you be willing to give up your private insurance? That's not how um, it was asked. For such a plan. And, and that's what you heard, right? Okay. Yeah, that's certainly what I heard. 
The Medicare for All plan Harris says she supports would effectively eliminate private insurance, with few exceptions, such as for elective surgery not covered by the federal plan. The topic has tripped her before. I don't know if your, your insurance company is going to cover this. Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. It was in the context of saying, let's get rid of all the bureaucracy. Let's get all of the ways. Oh, not the insurance companies. No, that's not what I meant. I know it was interpreted that way. If you watch the Now, the debate also challenged Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He was asked a question about the officer-involved shooting in in the town that he is mayor of South Bend. The question was why black representation of police officers has not improved while he has been mayor. And Brianna, he said very bluntly, quote, because I couldn't get it done. Brianna? Yes, he was very blunt. All right. Kyung Law, thank you so much for that report. All right. Let's talk about this. So this is this is a moment. Mm Uh, we'll talk about the Joe Biden side of this, but Kamala Harris had this moment. Could she capitalize on this, Karen? I think she has. I mean, look, it was an important moment for her to sort of make her case about the importance of this issue, um, particularly given that she's had some criticism from the left on her record as a prosecutor. And this is obviously a very personal issue for her. And I can say, having gone to Berkeley Public Schools years after her, it was still messed up. So for her to, you know, have such a personal experience with this issue, uh, I think was critical. And look, I think it likely gave her the bounce that she's going to need. The question will be, how do they keep that momentum going into the next debate? He tried to turn the prosecutor defendant yeah. thing back on her. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't take. Uh, oh, so I wonder, there's, there's a source that, from the Biden, close to Biden who says he's bruised but far from out. Do you think, Amanda, that there's lasting damage here? He hasn't recovered well. Even today watching his surrogates, like, they don't have the right answer. The reason why that was such a powerful moment last night is because Kamala Harris was speaking from a place of truth. She was saying, this is my experience. This is how I felt. And Biden's response was sort of to mansplain right by her and say, well, you don't have that right. She has a right to her feelings. And I think if she does want to capitalize on this moment, she could play into a broader theme that women particularly black women, deserve to be listened to. And right now, Biden isn't showing that he is willing to listen. And that's the problem. It's more than just feelings, though. It's about facts. Uh, He said today, and he said last night, that she mischaracterized my position. Actually, she was rather generous to him. She opened with, I'm not saying you're racist and all the qualifications. Actually, if you go back and look at what he said in the 1970s, There were some horrific claims. He says yesterday, I didn't oppose busing. Uh, He did. He called busing uh, bankrupt, asinine, even floated a constitutional amendment to get rid of busing. Uh, He said he didn't praise segregationist senators. Just last week, he praised them for their civility. He literally gave the eulogy at Strom Thurmond's funeral. So, you know, he was misrepresenting his own positions. And I'm amazed more Democrats didn't go after him last night. I mean, Kamala Harris, that amazing moment. We were all on the edge of us. It was a very powerful debate moment. But others didn't go after him. When Iraq came up, Rachel Maddow brought up Iraq and his disastrous vote. Bernie Sanders is standing next to him. Why didn't Bernie jump in and say, Joe, you and I were the only people on this stage who were in Congress. I got it right. You got it wrong. He didn't do it. And that was a mistake because Kamala Harris managed to dominate all the headlines and the entire debate. And rightly so. Well, I, I, have, a, I think I have an answer for that. They don't have to because they're watching him melt down That's as a candidate. Too. And I said here last week, Joe Biden will not be the Democratic nominee. I agree with I you. believe that's stronger every single day. Yep. His high watermark was the day he got into the race. This is not a bug. This is a feature. Yes. He is Bidening in front of our eyes. And this is why he's lost three times before. And so when he does get challenged by somebody, and again, not even as you're saying, this, isn't, this wasn't like the major leagues. This is still <laughs> like the first debate. Yeah. 
And, and, no suddenly, and he has, he's not handling it well. His team's not handling it well. And look, this is going to continue. And so why would you let Kamala Harris take the first shot at him? Watch him melt down. I meant for yourself. I meant for yourself. Kamala, we're all talking about her having been this amazing You're debater. Saying Bernie I'm saying, because Bernie, you know, he, yeah. he Bernie didn't dominate. Shot. There's another debate. Well, in the month well, on That's the thing. There are lots of debates to come. Yeah, Good luck, Joe Biden. She's the only one with the nerve and the... Spirit to do that work. It's hard to look after that front runner because okay. people don't want to alienate the, his voters. There was another swipe. There was another swipe against Biden, and it was a generational one from <laughs> Eric Swalwell. Let's listen. Yeah. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. If we're going to solve the issues of automation, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issue of student loan debt, pass the torch. I'm still holding on to that torch. It's like, look, well up. done. I'm still holding on to that <laughs> I mean, it's a good line about passing the torch. The problem is no one seriously thinks it's going to be passed to Eric Swalwell. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not even the youngest person on the stage last night. I think Pete yeah. Buttigieg is a year younger. So the whole pass the torch thing, look, Bernie's called it ageist, I think, after the debate. Is it ageist? Is it not ageist? I think there is a thing about politics, especially Democratic Party politics, which is generational. Um, you know, the last two Democratic presidents were in their 40s when they were elected, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. Jimmy Carter was in his early 50s. Everyone loves, loves to reminisce about JFK. That is going to be an issue, the age of Biden and Sanders. And also, just looking at Biden yesterday, he just didn't look like he was in control of anything. But in fairness, I, I feel like Biden and Bernie seemed out of place. I mean, the whole and the point about passing the torches, if you looked at the whole stage, you could pass the torch to just about any of the others who are on the stage. Marianne Williams. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I said just about. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. I mean, point being, there are a number of very qualified people in this race who have wonderful ideas, support progressive politics, and support the ideas of the Democratic Party that you could pass the torch to. To be fair to and Bernie, those like, were his ideas. Well, to be fair to not all of them. A lot of, we can ha- a lot of what last them. night they... Not many of them. The Democratic Party now sees the public option as the centrist position, which was seen as heresy just well, a few years ago in Obama. For the public option Indeed, and that's moved over the However, oh, yeah. the point <laughs> that I wanted to get to is the other thing about both Bernie and Biden is they sounded old. When Bernie was talking about the assault weapons ban and when he ran for Congress in 1988 and some of the language that Biden was using it. I mean, you don't have to talk about 1988. Kids just got shot a week ago. I mean, so some of it sounded and felt very old. Um, And so in addition to sort of looking old. There definitely was a generational theme that we saw. And coming up, a presidential candidate who has already seen a surge of support since the first debate. Senator Cory Booker is going to join us live. We're back with our 2020 lead, and after two nights of fiery confrontations and policy debates, Democratic presidential hopefuls now have just one month to study their performances and plan out their next attacks and convince as many voters as possible to back their White House bid before the second Democratic debate that is hosted by CNN. And joining me now is Democratic presidential candidate and New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, who is seeing a surge of support after his debate performance. We're seeing you get a bump in fundraising are you thinking you're going to get a bump in the polls? You know, right now, the fundraising is key. I hope more people will go to CoreyBooker.com because it's really helping us to execute our strategy, build a great organization in those early states and continue the momentum. Seven months plus before they vote uh, in, in Iowa alone is a long time here. We're going to just focus on getting our message out, building our organization, and I'm hoping more people will get involved with me uh, and my mission. If you see... A poll bounce, what's the takeaway? If you don't, 
What's the takeaway? You know, again, and, and you know this history, people, we have not had a nominee since well before Carter that was leading in the polls this far out that went on to the White House. Usually it's people like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama who are underestimated, polling behind, that win in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, which are often ways to show that you have the ability to win elections in the grassroots. So the polling is important. We're polling high enough right now to be in that top six or seven, uh, to be on those debate stages. I'm hoping we can continue to get momentum uh, because the debate stage for September is set so much higher. We need 130,000 unique uh, contributors. That's why we're trying to push people to CoreyBooker.com. But again, the polling numbers, I'm not being distracted. What I'm going to focus on is getting my heart, my vision, my plans, and my passion uh, before voters and more people who get a chance to discover who I am, I think the better we're going to do. I want to ask you about the former vice president. Uh, He defended his record on civil rights today after being grilled about it during last night's debate. Let's listen to the former vice president's comments. I never, 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 ever opposed voluntary busing. And as a program that Senator Harris participated in, and it made a difference in her life. I did support federal action to address root causes of segregation in our schools and our communities, including taking on the banks and redlining and trying to change the way in which neighborhoods were segregated. All right, we should note that he said he never opposed voluntary busing last night. He said he never opposed busing, period. What's your reaction? Well, first of all, the record speaks differently in some of his quotes from the time. Uh, I find reading them, and again, it's decades ago, uh, uh, problematic. He needs to talk to his record, as we all do. From the 1994 crime bill that I was a law student at the time, as somebody who was being, uh, frankly, often uh, followed or singled out by police. It led to the explosion of uh, mass incarceration, something that now I, working in the Senate, have been drawing back on those mandatory minimums and those things that were in that crime bill. Um, uh, he has to speak to his record. And the way he speaks about it is important. You know, I've been talking about this for the last two weeks, about him invoking language that, that the white segregationists called him son and not boy, without the understanding why that word boy was used by white segregationists against folks like my father and others that meant to degrade and demean and make them feel less than. The next presidential nominee, whoever they are, has to be up to the challenge of addressing these power dynamics, addressing issues of race and racism, and being able, most importantly, to call our country together to common ground and common purpose. Remind us that we have more in common than separates us and that we need to work together on issues of justice. You've got to be up to that challenge. Uh, That's one of the reasons I'm running, because of my history and record for bringing Americans together to get things done. Was he sufficient today in his explanation? You know, again, I I listened to some of that language that he was using uh, that still kind of worries me that, um, you know, this is a lesson uh, on some of these issues that a nominee shouldn't at this point have to learn. And again, voters are going to have to make up their own decision that our diverse party, uh, what kind of leader are we going to have that's going to inspire us uh, to be our best? And by the way, none of us, certainly not me, have been perfect or without mistakes. We all do it. But when you make a mistake... Don't fall into a defensive crouch. Don't try to shift blame like he said to me that I owed him an apology for his remarks. Uh, uh, That's not what we need right now. You know, part of being courageous is being vulnerable, is letting people know that you're not perfect. None of us are. Is letting people know that you're going to risk putting yourself out there and trying to be a light and that brings people together. And I'm hoping that we don't fall into this no apology world that Donald Trump seems to say 
uh, when uh, you do nothing wrong, make no mistakes. I think the best leaders are the ones that step up and say, hey, I don't have a perfect record. I haven't done anything right, but I've stayed in the saddle, continue to work and sacrifice for the greater good. I hope you'll join me in that in that march. Senator Cory Booker, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. President Trump is not going to like this one. A certain former president just said he is not, Trump is not, a legitimate commander-in-chief. In our 2020 lead this afternoon, former Vice President Biden is aggressively pushing back on attacks from last night's debate over his past stance on busing. 30 seconds to 60 seconds on a campaign debate exchange can't uh, do justice to a lifetime committed to civil rights. I never, 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 ever oppose voluntary busing. CNN's Tom Foreman takes a deeper look at the facts surrounding Biden's controversial stance on busing. It was the sharpest attack of the debate. Kamala Harris lighting into Joe Biden for opposing racial busing decades ago. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. And it brought a quick so rebuttal. Mischaracterized my position across the board. I'd so what do the facts racist. say? Harris was truthful about her childhood growing up in Berkeley. She was part of the second elementary school class there to experience busing in the late 1960s, the school tells CNN. As she would eventually write, I only learned later that we were part of a national experiment in desegregation. And while she, a young black girl, was attending a mostly white school, Joe Biden was becoming a U.S. senator. Around that same time, then-Senator Joe Biden uh, changed his position on busing and became anti-busing. He joined with Jesse Helms. I don't even know if you know this. But this I did not know that. But it's true. As courts ordered a lot more schools to promote integration by busing kids from predominantly black schools to largely white ones and vice versa, <laughs> protest, often violent, broke out coast to coast. And Biden indeed began pushing back. Listen to what he said on this date in 1977. I happen to think that the one way to ensure that you set the civil rights movement in America further back is to continue to push busing because it's a bankrupt policy. And now? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That split hair likely won't satisfy proponents of the policy. Still, Biden has long promoted civil and voting rights for African Americans and better housing policies to make sure black families can live and go to school where they wish. In short, the record shows Biden has fought for racial equality, even as he has refused to embrace the politically contentious reality of busing, joining the course of critics who have all said all along there's just not enough evidence its benefits outweigh the social upheaval. Brianna? All right, Tom Foreman, thank you so much for that. I want to bring in CNN senior political reporter Nia Malika Henderson and CNN political director David Chalian. Is this, Nia, shaping up to be a generational divide on this issue? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you saw folks making sort of the overt uh, generational argument with uh, Swalwell saying, pass the torch, pass the torch, pass the torch. But that's essentially what Kamala Harris was doing, too. Uh, basically saying, here she was, a young girl going to this integrated school, uh, bus to this integrated school when Joe Biden was an adult, uh, and pushing against uh, busing. So yes, this is a generational 
generational divide. I think the other way this is going to be a generational divide is in terms of black voters, right? Uh, I talked to some folks in, in South Carolina. One of the things that's interesting about the, the black voters in South Carolina is obviously they like Joe Biden. They see him as a loyal partner uh, to Obama. They almost see him as like part of the family. And a lot of the folks I talked to said, you know, leave Joe Biden alone. Uh, this doesn't really matter. Uh, Kamala is just doing this because she's behind at, at this point. Uh, but there are, and these are sort of the older, more moderate uh, black voters, particularly black women. Younger voters uh, see this a little differently. I mean, they are part of sort of the woke generation, Black Lives Matter. Uh, and you see some of this activity on Twitter. And also this younger generation of black voters are in some ways skeptical of Kamala Harris, too, because of her uh, record as a prosecutor. So this is going to be an interesting dynamic to, to play out. I think no one saw this coming. You know, in some ways, it was the sort of ideological divide that we were looking for. And Kamala Harris, I, I really think, did herself some good in terms of breaking out. And we'll but, see what but, it, and it was. And I th- it was pretty geared toward yeah. the African-American yeah. vote in many yeah. ways, right? Because Kamala Harris has understood. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a presidential candidate who has worked as hard to woo the African-American vote uh, as Kamala Harris yeah. has over the course of this campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, she knows it's her path to the nomination. And she knows this isn't just Joe Biden is not sitting on top of the polls, Brianna, just because of name ID. There is this real reservoir of goodwill in the party with African-Americans and more broadly. Yeah. And that is that is real. And so what this is going to test, what we're going to learn is, does that reservoir of goodwill give Joe Biden some sense of Teflon uh, in this race? Or do we start to see that reservoir of goodwill uh, you know, not being there in quite the same level that it has been thus far? How important is it that he brings the skill, because I'm wondering if you mentioned her vulnerability as a prosecutor, he tried to turn that around on her about the defender versus prosecutor. The punch didn't land. It didn't land. We also saw when he was defending himself and he was really he was on a roll, right? He was sort of, he was, you know, I think being forceful in defending himself, then the, the buzzer goes off and he's out of time. He's sorry. Yeah, he, he sort of threw in the towel when you saw a lot of other candidates pushing through that buzzer to finish their point forcefully. What did you make of that? And he did that with an expression that like instantly became a meme. Was he like, literally was like, my time's up. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you're like battling a, a generational question about your candidacy, my time's up is not, not the best expression right you now. ever would want to come out of your mouth. You're right. He did just sort of... I, I, Yes, he forcefully defended himself. I think even more so today in Chicago, as you just saw, it's hard to land the punch when you're already on the floor for being knocked out by uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, Biden's surrogates have been struggling today to answer for what he said last night. Some of them have actually been saying he didn't say what he said. Uh, We spoke to Cedric Richmond, congressman, and here's what he said. He's co-chair of Biden's national presidential campaign. Look at Vice President Biden's record then we know that he's an outstanding advocate for uh, civil rights and that he will always stand up to bullies. If the question is about uh, Vice President Biden's heart and where he is, I think his word said he wants to unify this country. Is that going to fly even is we look, we have to point out Biden has uh, of all the candidates, the strongest support among voters of color. Right. 
Will this affect? Will this be a negative moment for him? You know, we'll see. We don't really know. I mean, some folks I I talked to uh, down in South Carolina expect to see some movement with Harris moving up among African-American voters, maybe 10 percent. But listen, in this dogfight, 10 percent, if you're taking off uh, voters from Biden, if if Warren, who also is in some ways catching on with uh, black voters, uh, we'll we'll have to see. Uh, But, you know, the other thing that I picked up on in talking to folks in South Carolina, some of whom uh, were with Biden privately recently, that they're, they're a little worried. Uh, they were worried just about his demeanor uh, and his ability to be coherent in getting across points. And in some ways, you saw that on full display in the, in the debate. We've seen that when we've seen Biden on the stump, that he isn't the Biden that people but remember. He's, rusty. He, he's, he's a little, a little rusty. rusty. And, and, and the question is, is it age or is it he's out of practice? And, the, and then there's this other question of how much do voters factor that in? Because right now there's a very big divide. The political establishment, you know, there's this big question mark hanging over the Biden candidacy about exactly what he is talking about. The voters to date don't seem to right. have that question about the Biden candidacy. Mm-hmm. That's a very big divide. Last night, Joe Biden did absolutely nothing to bring sort of the political establishment closer to where the voters are. He exacerbated the questions that many Democrats have about the uh, strength of his frontrunner status. David and Nia, thank you guys so much. President Trump finally confronting Vladimir Putin about election interference. But why are his comments causing a big fuss? Maybe the way he delivered them? That's next. President Trump getting a bit of a chuckle in there while sitting next to Vladimir Putin and seemingly making light of the threat of Russian election interference. The U.S. intelligence community says that Putin, a former top Russian spy, directed the 2016 coordinated interference campaign. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, that wasn't the only controversial comment that these two leaders bonded over. With a grin on his face, President Trump finally brought up election meddling with Russian President Vladimir Putin. But as he wagged his finger, the president only offered this lighthearted warning. It was the first face-to-face for the two leaders since Robert Mueller laid out how Russia interfered in the 2016 election in a sweeping and systematic fashion. But Trump made clear he was ready to put the investigation behind them. We have a very, very good relationship, and we look forward to spending some very good time together. The laughs didn't stop at interference. Trump and Putin also joked about the reporters in the room. Since Putin has been in power, at least 26 reporters have been murdered in Russia, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. Thank you very much. During a meeting that lasted more than an hour, the White House says Trump and Putin talked about Iran, Syria, Venezuela and Ukraine. Trump canceled his meeting with Putin last fall after Russia seized Ukrainian ships and detained Ukrainian sailors. And he vowed not to meet with him again until the situation was resolved. But those sailors are still being held. Putin isn't the only strong man on Trump's schedule. The White House says he'll have breakfast with the Saudi crown prince in a few hours.
who the CIA concluded personally ordered the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I don't know if anyone's going to be able to conclude that the crown prince did it. Trump then sits down with Turkish President Erdogan, who Congress is threatening to sanction for the purchase of a Russian missile system. Now, Brianna, during their meeting, a Kremlin official says Putin invited President Trump to come to Russia next year to celebrate Victory Day. That's an invitation that the White House says the president has not RSVP'd yet. All right, Caitlin Collins for us in Japan. Thank you so much for that report. And joining me now is former FBI and CIA analyst Phil Mudd. And I, as you listen to the president's comments there about uh, journalists, but especially about election security with, uh, with uh, President Putin there looking on, what is the real, what's the real effect of him making light of meddling? Uh, I, I think we've misinterpreted. I've, I've been trying to understand what the president's doing. Our misinterpretation has been saying maybe the president is embarrassed by this. Because maybe and when he looks at the, the margins of electoral victory, he's saying, hey, the Russians maybe did help me. I, I think we need to change the dynamic. Look at this through the eyes of Putin. Putin, who wants himself to control the media, might be saying, hey, it's perfectly appropriate for people like me and the president of the United States to be pushing the media in the direction towards us. So maybe the president is actually encouraging me to do this. That's a Putin mindset that I think is not out of the, out of the realm of possibility. He thinks it's a green light from the president. And then joking about getting rid of journalists with a leader who uh, is believed to be we've I mean, we've seen a lot of Russian journalists murdered and there is a belief that and, and there is evidence that the Russian government has been connected to some of that. Also, think of all of the other countries where leaders have uh, imprisoned or killed uh, reporters. What's the real effect of that? I mean, I look at this and say for the American people, the president keeps saying on guns, I represent you and I represent the Constitution. The Constitution actually says we all have a right to free speech. If the president got his intelligence briefs, and I think some of this is a reflection of a lack of understanding of what happens in Russia, he'd know that you not only don't you have free speech in Russia, you've got murder. I would also point out that, that on the issue of the Constitution, the president keeps talking about term limits. That's also in the Constitution. Once you get elected out, you're done. He keeps joking that it's going to stay after term limits. You can't do that. I want you to listen to what Leon Panetta, former CIA director and defense secretary under President Obama, told me about this this afternoon. I think that was uh, a disgraceful moment uh, for the president of the United States. The president doesn't realize that when he does that, uh, it sends a terrible message to the world uh, that the United States is weak. Uh, and that the president is weak uh, in the presence of uh, Vladimir Putin. If the president is weak in the face of Vladimir Putin, what does it mean for America? I think there's a bigger issue. If you look at what the president has done, there's rampant murder in the Philippines. Long time an American ally, but the Philippines right now are a problem. When you look at what the president said about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and basically saying, we don't know what's going to happen after, after the intelligence community said this was murder. And now we see the president joking with the Russians about, with Vladimir Putin, about journalists. They're murdered in Russia. I think the impression is not just about journalism. It's not just about the First Amendment. It's about America who built a reputation on, on human rights saying, I'm not sure they matter that much anymore. I think people watch. All right. Phil Mudd, thank you so thank much you. for your insight. Uh, folks in a high place are getting political. A few people that you would never expect weighing in on the 2020 election. 
The 2020 lead, as if two dozen uh, candidates plus President Trump weren't enough, today the Supreme Court justices signaled that they, too, are going to be in the mix, injecting their opinions on highly charged issues in a highly charged race. We have CNN's Ariane DeVogue, the Supreme Court, uh, our Supreme Court, pardon me, Supreme Court reporter who's joining us now. And Ariane, the justices said today that a key immigration case is going to be on their next docket and that abortion could be right behind it. Tell us about this. Right, Brianna. Next term, this Supreme Court in the heat of the next election is going to hear some really big issues. Uh, today, we learned, as you said, that they're going to take up DACA. That's that Obama-era program that gave protections for those immigrants who came here as children. It was a bit of a surprise that the Supreme Court weighed in uh, all term long. Chief Justice John Roberts and others have talked about keeping the court out of the political fray. But next year, they're going to take up this case. In many ways, Brianna, the case that the term that just ended was not this big conservative uh, revolution that so many liberals worried about. It wasn't. But next term, it's going to be something different because the court's going to hear DACA and it could also hear abortion. Uh, today, uh, conservative justice Clarence Thomas, he wrote an opinion and he said he wants the court to take up abortion. Uh, he wrote, that the court's abortion jurisprudence has spiraled out of control. He said, we cannot continue blinking the reality of what this court has wrought. So abortion is not on the docket so far. It could very well be. But here are some other cases that are on there. The Second Amendment, LGBT rights, environment. This court is poised to take a hard right turn next term. And you're watching Chief Justice John Roberts. Right. John Roberts has been so interesting because he, now with the retirement of Justice Kennedy, Roberts is in control. He's got his feet on the pedals. This year, he pushed the brake a couple of times. But how fast and how far this court goes next term will be up to Chief Justice John Roberts, Brianna. All right. Ariane DeVogue, thank you so much. What do you guys think? Are voters, are voters paying attention writ large, each party, to mm -hmm. this? I don't know so much about the court's opinions, but without a doubt, abortion and amnesty will be major issues in 2020. And if the Supreme Court is weighing decisions at a time, all the more so. And this is where I think the Democrats are painting themselves into a corner with these debates. Republicans are watching and saying, wow, the party is going to a place with no restrictions on amnesty, no restrictions on abortion. And those those positions will be rejected by a lot of voters. And I don't see any Democrats really even trying to give an eye towards Republicans with those concerns for the I general. Think it depends on what the nature of the case is. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. the expectation between, I think also healthcare might make it. So there are a whole suite of cases that some on our side believe could actually motivate Democratic voters because we don't pay as close attention to the courts as we should. Yep. It has been far more of a motivator on the right than it has on the left. And one of the arguments that, you know, folks have tried to make is we have to pay attention to the courts. These things really matter, not just because if it gets to the Supreme Court, but because, again, all these lower courts and the way that um, President Trump has been able to fill those. The, this is the dream of the conservative movement. Yeah, I mean, I think it, the, the Democratic base we know is already fired up and they're going to be fired up about President Trump's uh, reelection. The Republican base, this is something that brings them together. It brings the Trump base, the populist base, more traditional conservative base. When you start talking about the Supreme Court, it is a huge motivation for them. So regardless of what they're talking about, just the fact that the court is an issue in the election is actually going to, I think, really help Republicans in the election. What happens if the Supreme Court kills DACA in an election year? 
I think it helps the Democrats. Sorry, it's been a cynical way. It's a horrible thing if it happens to 700,000 people who are living in uncertainty and fear. But in that sense, you know, you talk about energizing the base. Right now, it works for Trump to be able to say, the courts, the courts, it's all the courts holding up my policies. Um, but if they do come out with that decision, Democrats are already still upset about Kavanaugh, rightly so, about the whole Kavanaugh hearings, about the stolen seat for Gorsuch. It would just be another reminder that this is a broken Supreme Court, deeply politicized, uh, needs reform. You saw Bernie Sanders yesterday, who I heard speak about Supreme Court reform, talking about rotating justice. Uh, Pete Buttigieg just talked about adding justices. You'll hear much more, many more calls for reforming a court. And just by the way, quickly on DACA, you talked about unpopularity, extreme positions. DACA is one of the most common ground positions amongst Republicans and Democrats. I think right. more than it, 80% of Americans support DACA recipients having some sort of road towards citizenship. a failure that it will be decided upon by the Supreme Court. DACA yes. stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Deferred until when? I mean, Congress really... It should have been on them to decide how we are going to handle these but children. The house just passed. Leaving it up to the court. It was a huge gamble. But the House just passed legislation which won't get through the Senate. Look, That's it, the President Obama did this. Conservatives mm-hmm. from the beginning said it was unconstitutional. The Trump administration came in. They were not going to, on behalf of the administration, mm-hmm. argue the administration's position that they think is unconstitutional. Right. They went to the Congress and said, guys, we should get together and fix this because yes. we can't defend something that's not constitutional. Now the, the court's going to weigh in on it. election year. You're exactly right. People support DACA across the board. If you were brought here as a child, right, when you talk to people about that, that is an important issue. That is a voting issue. When you say, I mean, seven in 10 people believe that Roe v. Wade should remain the law of the land. When you start talking about these issues in terms of under this court, here are the things that could go away. That's where I think it becomes very motivating for Democrats. Roe v. Wade, if that's on the table, very quickly, we have like half a minute. Who's more motivated, Democrats or Republicans? Both. It, it, yeah. it goes both ways. And look, where the Democrats are going, abortion all the way up until birth yep. and maybe after that's birth, taxpayer funding for abortions. In the debate last night, at that point, over it's not half of abortion, women don't way. want taxpayer-funded abortions, and yet that's how far left they're going in the first debate already on abortion. Quick final word. I was just, no, I was just going to say, again, this issue is nowhere near where it used to be. Seven in ten Americans, I believe in a recent uh, CNN poll, actually even 80 percent of voters in Iowa support uh, Roe v. Wade. So this issue is a majority issue, and I think, again, it will motivate people. Ahead, the white supremacist who drove into a crowd in Charlottesville, Virginia, killing one woman, just learned his fate. In our national lead, the white supremacist who killed a woman and injured dozens of others during the Charlottesville white nationalist rally has just been sentenced to life in prison. James Alex Fields Jr. killed 32-year-old Heather Heyer when he plowed his car through a group of counter-protesters during the 2017 Unite the Right rally. He pleaded guilty to 29 hate crimes prior to sentencing. Heyer's mother was in court today when the sentencing came in, and she said she hopes Fields can heal someday and help others heal. Tune in this Sunday morning to State of the Union. We are speaking to presidential candidates Julian Castro and Senator Amy Klobuchar. That is at 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. Eastern. And follow me on Twitter at Brie Keeler CNN or just tweet the show at The Lead CNN. I'm Brianna Keeler in for Jake Tapper, and our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.